This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A hundred days ago, Dr. Joe DeTuri put on his scuba gear, dove 30 feet below the surface, and entered a 100-square-foot underwater lodge. This former U.S. Navy diving officer hasn't come up for air until today, day number 100. And during his stay, he broke the record for living underwater weeks ago. But what's the point? Well, he did all of this in the name of science to understand how the human body handles long-term exposure to pressure. This mission is called Project Neptune 100, and because those 100 days are finally up, we're taking a deep dive, well, maybe not that deep, into the underwater habitat to hear what is to be learned from so many days below the waves. We recorded this interview on day number 94 with a live virtual audience whom you'll hear from later. So joining me now is Dr. Deep Sea, Dr. Joe DeTori, a biomedical engineer and associate professor at the University of South Florida, joining us from the bottom of a lagoon in Key Largo, Florida. Also, Dr. Sarah Spelsberg, wilderness emergency specialist and medical lead for Project Neptune 100, coming to us from the Maldives. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Nice to have you. You've been living there underwater for, for more than 90 days. Is there an action or something about your body that has surprised you the most about living underwater for so long? Ah, interestingly enough, uh, two things. Uh, the, the compelling shortness. Uh, I was 73 inches when I started this thing, and I used to scrape my head right on the emergency escape hatch. I no longer scrape my head. I believe I'm shrinking, although the doctor will tell us the details when I come to the surface on that measurement. Secondly, uh, for instance, last night, I slept about seven and a half hours. Five of those hours, five of those hours were in deep or REM sleep. Unheard of sleep cycle down here like you would not believe. Wow. Do we know why that is? I, I go into these research projects without trying to go in without preconceived notions and trying not to spend too much time obsessing about the data early on until we have enough uh, to do the statistics. And I, I think um, I think the noise and I think the depth and I think the pressure and gentle gentle vibration down there. I think they all all play a role in uh, in kind of creating this sleep bubble. Hmm. And Joe, tell us what what you're trying to accomplish with this hundred day mission. So it's a threefold purpose, actually. And the first part is I have a PhD in biomedical engineering. Therefore, I want to do biomedical research on the human. You leave it in an isolated, confined, extreme environment for 100 days. What happens? 19 psychological and psychosocial tests before, all the way through, during, and then afterwards. Uh, 200 blood, urine, and saliva tests. Uh, you know, we, we, we basically do electrocardiograms on the heart on a regular basis, electroencephalograms for the brain to see what happens with the, you know, coherence, what happens to the phase lag while it's down here, the alpha theta ratios. We're checking all that stuff and we're just pointing it in the direction. We're also doing pulmonary function tests to see if there's a decrease in, you know, vital capacity or whatever happens after you leave somebody in this high partial pressure of oxygen environment. And that's only the first thing that we do. And the second thing is we get to do outreach to kids. And to date, we've gotten almost 4,000 kids that we have physically talked to, that I have physically talked wow. to in some way, shape, or form in less than 100 days, right? So 
the the numbers are staggering and we're just we're out there doing good stuff we're talking to them about science technology engineering and mathematics and these kids are so much better at technology and they're born scientists so i'm just just reiterating to them that they can do stuff that's fun in a fun place like the ocean where I am. Right. And then right. third and finally, I'm talking to the greatest scientists on the planet about preserving, protecting, and now rejuvenating the marine environment. PhDs in marine science and shark research, in sponge research, uh, anything that's going on, ichthyology, and we're just trying to figure out how we can do this better. For instance, we learned how to transplant and replant coral on a coral reef and rejuvenate really? the coral. Oh, absolutely. And I was just talking with a whole group of kids two days ago. It was great. That's terrific. And so, Sarah, tell me, you're an explorer and a doctor and sometimes both at the same time. Why did you get involved in this project and what, what do you view as your mission? I mean, my mission is to make Joe's vision uh, a reality and and to protect the data and make sure we get all of the data that we're that we're trying to get here uh, when he told me about this project I was I was really enthralled and just thrilled at the opportunity to be a part of it much less uh, the lead MD for this study and uh, and I'm interested too because I've always been interested in hyperbaric and I feel like it's you know somewhat of an underutilized technology when it comes to diseases it has, applications for wound healing and obviously decompression sickness. And, and now uh, with Joe's research on, um, you know, traumatic brain injury, it's, it's showing a lot of promise there as well. And I think that um, I think there's there's promise here for inflammatory conditions and, and other other um, pathologies uh, for people who are at high risk for cardiovascular disease um, from what we're seeing from the data so far. So I, I knew getting on board that this was going to be a big deal and exciting. And, and I don't think I knew quite how big and quite how exciting it was going to become. Sarah, and you uh, you visit Joe to get samples. Blood I samples. do. What's, what's that do. like? <laughs> it's it's, it's a, a unique house call. I, I don't know that I've <laughs> ever heard of another physician <laughs> scuba diving down to their patients. Um, and it's and it's fun and exciting for me. And I, as as you know, we've spoken, I'm in the Maldives. I love diving. I love swimming. I love snorkeling. I love marine life. And uh, cleaning up the oceans is, is, a, is a particular passion of mine. Um, so, yeah, I, d I dive down there. I surface in the moon pool. I get myself cleaned up so I don't drip all over everything. He's already collected the blood and the saliva specimens, but then I draw his blood underwater and we've ultrasounded him underwater to take a look at his heart and lungs. And um, we've done all, all of these interesting house calls uh, underwater. Is there any difference between collecting blood, drawing blood on land versus underwater? Yes. I, I wasn't sure what to expect the first time. Because you know how a um, potato chip bag, if you go up in a plane, it becomes really big. Well, when you go down at depth, it gets really small. And so when I draw his blood at depth and then I dive to the surface with it, I was, I was deeply concerned that it was going to explode. And so what I did was I drew twice as many vials, but only half full. And the thing that I think surprised me the most was how fast it came out. He has a normal blood pressure and a very normal heart rate, and the blood just shot out. Like when I first stuck stuck it in and tried to connect um, the vacuum tube, it, it almost shot me off the power and the pressure. Wow! And it, it was just wow. like, whoa, okay, that's happening. When while well, we're filming it, of course, um, but we got it back on and got the rest of our samples, and it it just it comes out really fast, really fast. Joe, is that because you're you're pressurized? How pressurized are you down there as opposed to? being on the surface? 
We're at 25 pounds per square inch. Uh, surface is 14.69. And, uh, you know, the vacuum tube is zero. So it's it's a much greater, much greater pressure. So it makes sense. And we knew this and we had talked it through. We even did a trial run right. in the moon pool of uh, of a uh, of a syringe full of water just to see what happened. And I was a little daunted at that point. Let's just put it that way. Got it. I got it. I got it. Sarah, you told us about bringing those those samples back to the surface. Do you have any results from the, the blood samples? We do. We do have some results. And I think, you know, and we have a lot, as he said, we're, we've done hundreds of tests. So probably the most compelling to me are that his, a lot of his inflammatory markers ha have dropped and stayed down. So it'll be very interesting to me then what happens after he's been back at the surface for a period of time and we redraw because if they stay down or if they or if they come back up, um, it it opens up the door for hyperbaric to be a, a treatment option for a lot of autoimmune and inflammatory conditions like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, rheumatoid arthritis. And then the other thing is his cortisol has gone down. His like total pooled cortisol, which is a stress hormone. It's like the fight or flight hormone. And when you when you when you're in a chronic state of stress, you might have chronically elevated cortisol and it can have a lot of effects on the body. Um, and it can, and having wow. it go down is, wow. yeah, it's, that's, it's very exciting. So your immune system is tweaked up and you're re relaxing more. Down. And you're relaxing more. And yeah. And your testosterone's up. You're like, your, your total testosterone has so just gone up. So you can rip a phone book <laughs> while being very relaxed and... <laughs> do, do, do it you sounds notice? like the life, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, do you notice? Can you feel any difference, Joe, from these things happening? I feel amazing because I'm getting much better sleep. Being in 60 to 66% REM sleep is unheard of for Joe Tori, right? I mean, that wasn't the way that I slept. I was in the military for 28 years. I was always constantly on guard. I had a traumatic brain injury. Therefore, I didn't generally sleep very well. So when I was able to sleep and catch up on sleep, now I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I am so much more productive. I'm literally, you know, I'm literally buzzing while I'm down here. And, and you know, I do all kinds of interviews and I'm engaged probably 16 to 18 hours a day. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Let me go to our questions from our audience. Uh, Nikun has a question about monitoring your heart. Uh, Nikun, go ahead. Yeah, I was just wondering if, if there was any effect on the on the heart. Um, you were talking about the blood pressure. Were there echocardiograms done? You know, have we looked at uh, things like pulmonary hypertension, stuff like that? Uh, I'm actually in the Navy myself, and I'm a uh, pulmonary and critical care physician. So this is this is a very intriguing topic. Thank you. Electrocardiograms are done twice a week. Absolutely, we're checking it now. It is just a six lead EKG, but we're doing blood pressure testing, and we see. Uh, no substantial increase in blood pressure the entire time. Oxygen testing uh, with the uh, with the little pulse oximeter. And we're also doing pulmonary function testing every two weeks on this. Now I'm at 36% oxygen, being as I'm breathing 21% from the surface at this increased pressure. So Boyle's law squishes it down and Dalton's law says that the whole has to equal the sum of its parts. So effectively, I'm breathing 36% oxygen at this depth, and the possibility of pulmonary oxygen toxicity is very real. So especially in the last couple of weeks, we have been reducing the amount of time, and we do this regularly and often, because I want to make sure. We want to see what yeah. intolerance is, right? 
and then we we've used a butterfly ultrasound uh, to try to get pictures of the of the heart and the lungs about once a month. Um, but we haven't done any like really invasive pulmonary hypertension uh, testing. He swims every day, so I try to I try to minimize how many holes I poke in him. <laughs> Joe, Joe, is your diet and exercise plan different underwater? She talked about swimming than it was up on the surface. So exercise plan is different. Diet is exactly the same. I'm a creature of habit. I was in the military for a lot of years. I just eat three eggs in the morning, a salad with a lot of protein on it in the afternoon. And then at dinner, I just have high protein and something green as a vegetable. But what we're doing is we're testing out these katsu bands and we're using resistance band technology. And what we're trying to do is build muscle, everything distal to this cup when it's pumped up will be engorged with blood. When it's engorged with blood, you increase mitochondrial plumpness, you know, and you're helping to, to basically tire the muscle more quickly. Then when you let it up and you let the oxygen or the uh, blood back in, so you get to remove that lactic acid buildup and work the whole left side of the Krebs cycle, which is epic for building muscle. And here we are, you know, at the bone crunching depth still keeping the same muscle tone. And that is all I have done down here. Zero elf exercise whatsoever, just the resistance bands. So, right, and we've right. done muscle uh, <laughs> size testing and we'll see how I'm doing. I mean, I lost eight pounds when I first came down here and I hated that. <laughs> but, but we've done measurements. We've done measurements and the, mu the muscle mass has stayed, uh, stayed the same. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Let me go to another question. Earl from Davis, California. Earl has a question about your process while scuba diving. Hi, Earl. Go ahead. Yes. Hi. Um, as a scuba diver, it sounds like you're at the depth where you wouldn't have to worry about the bins per se with surfacing if you did it slow enough. But I, I wonder when you go outside the chamber, how close do you get to the surface? I don't approach anything closer than 10 feet. That cuts my depth in half. And that's what Hal Bain said initially is if you cut your pressure in half, you don't want to cut your pressure in any more than that. So basically, I'm just trying to limit and split the difference between it. In saturation diving, we call it excursion. There's a lot of math involved in calculating your decompression. And when you do it, you realize, wow, there actually is decompression. So while the Navy tables and other tables say the word unlimited, that's not exactly true. Can you get bent? Yes. Have people been bent from this depth? Absolutely has happened. Treated at the hotel, at the hospital right here in uh, in the Keys. So I know of them because I get I get the call all the time. So it has happened. Right. I have to ask you, um, being isolated down there, has anything gone wrong medically speaking? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that you're laughing at this question. It's got to be so, something. What What had happened was on day twelve, I called Sarah and I said. What can you do for a cracked tooth? And she said, you did what? <laughs> I said, yeah, day 12, Ooh. I cracked the molar. Ooh, that's the worst. Oh. Yeah, it's been a rough couple of months. But, you know, the, the dentist couldn't get me in until July anyway. <laughs> they were like, like, you're all pulled up until July. And I'm like, oh, you're killing me. I'm like, I happen to be underwater. So, but it, it poses unique problems, you know, like normally what would happen if you have a, a extended duration between the time you can get to the dentist is you pack it and you seal it with a kit from Walmart, right? Or someplace off the shelf, right? But you cannot do that underwater because if you seal it here, you have barodentalgia. You come up and that air has to expand. It's physics. It works. How 
your tooth explodes when you come to the surface if you seal it when you're underwater. So, you know, it's kind of a unique kind of suck it up sort of a situation. You're uh, you're a week from resurfacing. What do you miss most about life on land? And don't say a pizza, please just don't say that. No, no, absolutely not. No, honestly, <laughs> that's what I miss the most, the sun. So realistically, when I came underwater, I'm a creature of the sun. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go to, to the gym, and then I'd go watch the sunrise. When I went home in the evening, I would go watch the sunset. And I didn't realize how much it affected my psyche. So while I have normal circadian rhythm and sleep is amazing, you still miss that sun, that awesome orange orb. So the only supplement I'm taking while underwater for this 100 days is 2000 IUs of vitamin D because my great doctor told me to make sure of that because there will be no sun down there. I insisted on that. That was the only thing I said. You have to take vitamin D. We're not going to mess with the soup other than that, but you have to take vitamin D. Let's talk about what you do for fun. Down there, all by yourself, right? What do you do for fun down there? So, you know, I'm busy for like 14, 12 hours at least a day. I'm busy. Uh, and, you know, I'm diving and I'm doing, you know, I'm doing my experiments and doing the outreach and so forth. So, realistically, when you say fun, I mean, this is fun for me. I mean, I'm, being very literal when I say this is my job. Yeah. So my job is fun and it's a passion of mine. So I get to do this. I get to do this research on a regular basis and I get to excite a kid about science, technology, engineering, and math. And I get to learn from the world's experts and, you know, uh, about the marine science and the world of marine science. So short of that, right. that's basically it. Uh, right. You know, I get to relax a little bit. Uh, I get to look out this window. My favorite thing to do is look out this window at night and vary the color of the light and just watch the circle of life happen. You know, the plankton comes out, <laughs> then the worms. And the little ha, ha, have any of the critters adopted you <laughs> while you've been down there? They see you looking out at them all the time. Oh, yeah. Come up. My friend Fred the lobster lives right on a shelf. Oh, my God, he's right there. Okay, so he's right there right now, right? <laughs> he's literally right there right now. And I saw Fred molt. Okay, so lobster molt. Wow. So I saw him doing this type of emotion, and I'm like, what's wrong with Fred? So I just jumped in, got on my scuba gear, swam out there. And when I did, his body was lying motionless. And I'm like, Fred? And then I saw this pink gelatinous gooey thing just skulking away. And I was like, Fred, Fred. And Fred was gone. And I was like, wait, they molt. He molted. Fred molted in front of my eyes. Oh, my goodness. It's a great story. That's, that's a great story. Sarah, you treat people. Uh, how can you take what you learned from this mission and apply it to your patients? Some good information here? Are we going to change medicine at all? I think we might, actually. I, th I think we might. Um, from what we've learned here, I am very curious to see what happens with our results once we get him back to the surface. And if the, um, if the improvements, the decreased cortisol, because he, he had higher cortisol. He was working hard and he was under a fair bit of stress when we tested him at the surface. And so now it's gone down well into the green zone. And then in our second draw, it, it dropped yet again. And so if we can find a way to utilize some of this technology to, to decrease people's stress or, or somehow decrease like this, the inflammation, I think we could, help, we could help a lot of people. We could treat a lot of disease. Joe, how would, how would you answer that question, Joe? 
So I think I think we need a fundamental shift in the way we do uh, research in general. And, and that's truly what I think is going to come out of this is a fundamental shift. Everybody wants to know. Drug companies want to know what's the one thing that the one variable, if I give you this drug and I isolate everything else, then, you know, then we can prove that the drug is safe. Well, that proves the drug and that's it. But if you're treating people from a holistic perspective, you need to research entirely differently. You need to look at every single thing and see what changes and then just kind of make some good assumptions. You know, I realize it's all rooted in science, but goodness, you know, we got to stay off the drug company model and onto a possibility of actually doing a different kind of research for the human body. I was just going to say that the, the sleep quality and the time to exercise, I think if we gave that, if I could encourage every patient of mine to, to prioritize getting quality sleep and prioritize focusing on getting exercise every single day, I think I think a lot of these markers would improve in them also. Do you think we could adapt uh, hyperbaric chambers for more things than we normally do now, Sarah? Yes. I'm, I'm hopeful that the answer to that is yes. All right. Joe, you've been down there almost 100 days. Can you top this? What do you want to do next? Because you look like a guy who is still raring to go about something. I do, in fact. I'm doing my zero-G flight, and I'm going to prove these cups and these resistance bands in zero gravity. And then, um, hey, Elon, if you're listening, sir, I uh, somebody owes me 100 sunrises and sunsets. So with the speed of rotation of the International Space Station, that's about six and a half days on the ISS. So I'll trade you straight up. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. I, I want to thank both of you for, for taking time to be with us today. Quite fascinating and quite really informative. Uh, Dr. Joe DeTore, biomedical engineer, associate professor, University of South Florida. He was joining us from the bottom of a lagoon in Key Largo, Florida. And Dr. Sarah Spellsberg, wilderness emergency specialist and the medical lead for Project Neptune 100 coming to us from the wonderful Maldives. Thank you both and good luck to you. Thank you for having us. Great time. Thank you, Ira.